Well, please stand. Let's turn in our Bibles uh, to the New Testament to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to begin at verse 18 and read to the end of the chapter. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him... You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen. Now let's turn to Judges chapter 3. We're mostly going to read chapter 4, but we'll start at chapter 3, verse 31. The hymn referred to as Ehud in verse 31. It says, After him, Ehud, was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And... The Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hatzor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. 
Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now, Haber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites and the, uh, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Za'ananim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harasheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hagoyim, And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hatsor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say, No. But Jael, the wife of Haber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera, dead, with a tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would now bless the word that has just been read. It is, is now preached among us. Open our eyes, we pray, that we might see the wonderful things your word contains. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When I was in seminary, One of my classmates was a Christian hip-hop artist uh, who would use that poetic form to... Actually, it would surprise you, if you listen to it, talk about some pretty deep concepts in theology. Occasionally, they get him to perform uh, at school, and there's one song that he would do that has actually stuck with me ever since. Sometimes it goes around in my head. It's very catchy. It's about the story of David and Goliath. Uh, it's not the story, but um, it's related. It's really amazing. He gets into all of this exegesis, these Hebrew terms, and comparing the literary imagery to other parts of the Bible. It's, it's very deep. 
The song is called Head Crusher. Of course, uh, Goliath loses his head in that story. That's significant from uh, the perspective of biblical theology. Uh, The lyrics start out by pointing out the problems with um, the kind of shallow moralism of approaching David and Goliath and, and saying, well, the point of the story is that David defeated his giant by trusting in God, and so you can go out and defeat uh, your giants if you trust in God, um, whatever those giants in your life happen to be. And the, the song says, no, that's not the point of the story. David and Goliath is about God's anointed shepherd king fighting on behalf of the helpless and fearful Israelites who are on the sidelines, watching him win the victory on their behalf. It's giving a a picture of what Christ has done for us in defeating our enemies when we could not. And the really catchy part is the chorus that goes like this. It says, Is David and Goliath about facing your giants or about the son of David who was slaying the tyrant? Over Satan he triumphed when he suffered and bled. Our representative king was crushing his head. And then later, over Satan, he triumphed. He got up from the dead. The main point of the story, he was crushing his head. And that's how the song ends with the head crusher. Of course, that's referring back to Genesis 3.15, the first promise of the gospel of the coming of Christ. Um, in the Bible, where, he, where it says, I, where the Lord says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, like with the story of David and Goliath, it's easy to get sidetracked throughout the book of Judges, and in this chapter in particular, with trying to find the moral of the story, trying to figure out whether or not we're supposed to imitate or criticize Barak or Deborah and so on. But I hope to give you a different perspective on this account tonight to show you that the main point of the story is the crushing of the head of the enemy of God's people in a surprising way in such an unlooked-for way that only God can get the glory because salvation belongs to the Lord and not to any of the human characters involved in this narrative. So these are going to be our three points for tonight. We're going to look at, first, God's unusual messenger up through chapter 4, verse 11. Second, God's unlikely victory, verses 12 to 16, and then God's unexpected instrument, verses 17 to 24. So God's unusual messenger, God's unlikely victory, and God's unexpected instrument. So if you um, look at the first four judges, um, Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, um, all of them are marked in the store, in the various accounts, as in some way unlike unusual characters to do what they do in God's plan to save Israel. This is a point commentator Lillian Klein makes. I think it's very helpful. Othniel, for example, is specifically named as the younger brother of Caleb. You can imagine him always living in Caleb's shadow, this legendary 
Jide, uh, this legendary leader of Judah, whose pedigree goes all the way back to those uh, being one of the two good spies along with Joshua. But it is Othniel, the younger brother that God uses in chapter 3 to deliver Israel from Kushan Rishatayim. Um, Ehud then, the next one, Ehud is left-handed. That kind of uncommon attribute that turns out to be quite central in his plan for uh, killing the Moabite king Eglon. Shamgar is kind of unlikely because um, if the scholars are right, many scholars believe based on his name and his father's name, the way his story is told, that he may not have actually been an Israelite at all. Um, somebody, the Lord bringing a non-Israelite to deliver Israel from the Philistines, uh, or even if he was an Israelite, at, at, we can at the very least say that the way he did it was unexpected and unconventional, using an ox goad, of all things, uh, reminding us, as we saw last time, that series of improvised weapons, um, as that one com- commentator put it, that these various judges use. Ehud's sword, Shamgar's ox goad, later there's going to be Gideon's jar, Samson's jawbone, and in this story, a tent peg is the weapon of choice. So already, up to this point, there's been this history of God using unusual people in unusual ways to deliver his people by unusual means that only God could have planned out. Not what people would have expected. And so here we are snapped to attention yet again as we encounter yet another unexpected, unusual character, Deborah, the prophetess. There are, this is not the only prophetess in the Bible. There are other examples of this. Uh, quite important characters like Huldah in 2 Kings 22, um, Anna, the prophetess in Luke chapter 2. Um, but they're not very common in the Bible. And especially uncommon is the statement that Deborah was judging Israel at this time with the, the people of Israel coming up to her for judgment, verse 5. Now, at that time. So what kind of time was this? Well, once again, Israel has fallen under the control of a mighty foreign enemy. This time it is Jabin, king of Canaan. Um, Ehud's leadership legacy did not outlast him, his death, his own generation. And so when he died, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And once again, you see as a consequence uh, that kind of motif of the exodus in reverse that we talked about last time, as it says once again that the Lord sold them. The Lord sold them now into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. So from a a human point of view, um, Jabin was able to subjugate Israel for these 20 years because he had um, very quite superior military technology. It mentions his 900 chariots of iron in verse 3. That's bad news if you're on the other side and you don't have chariots of your own. It's one of these game changers. Um, If you have chariots, you have a major advantage, at least if you are in terrain that allows the chariots to move around freely. Well, in verse 3, the people of Israel cry to the Lord for help. And part of God's answer is to send them Deborah. And then through Deborah to call into action Barak, who's actually going to be the one to lead Israel's army into battle. Uh, And so what makes Deborah special here? It's her status as a prophetess. As a prophetess, it means that it's through Deborah that God's people at this point are getting to hear God's word. 
You can see right away then the grace of God evident from the very beginning. Even before they win a victory militarily or get delivered from their enemies, you already see God's grace in giving Israel his word, his prophetic word. Here's Israel, they're laboring under servitude to the Canaanites because they've rebelled against the Lord. Do you think that Israel deserved to hear any word of God at this moment? What grace it is for God to move towards Israel, to communicate with them at all, to say anything to them. And all the more, the content of that message is to say, I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to give Jabin's army into your hand. Now, I want to address a, a very common interpretation of what happens next uh, with Deborah and Barak. It's very common for people to characterize Barak as a uh, reluctant, even, even sometimes um, cowardly leader who had to be kind of handheld and, and cajoled into actually going to war. Uh, And this is because of his response to Deborah in verse 8, where Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And many interpreters will look at that and say, Well, see, here's an example of a a hesitant leader who doesn't want to do what the Lord has said, even though God has promised him success, uh, even though God's commanded it, and instead he needs this woman, Deborah, to come along with him when he should have been man enough or something to go out and do it on his own. I'm overstating that a little bit, but that's the general idea. Um, And I will admit, um, it's a little bit uncertain. This is one of those areas where we might uh, think, if only we had a little bit more detail, we might have a clearer understanding of exactly what's going on. Um, And it may be, it may be that Barak is being characterized as as reluctant and hesitant. Maybe so. But I'm actually a little more inclined to a different view of what's going on here, which says that Barak may actually be showing a degree of spiritual insight in this case. Why wouldn't we see it as a good thing that God's chosen military leader is insisting that the instrument of God's revelation go with Israel to war, that the prophetess go with them to war, the one through whom Israel is now receiving the word of God. Why would it be a bad thing for him to want that person with him in the war? So that Israel can be guided by the word of God in the way they wage the war, as well as the fact that they're waging. And in fact, that is borne out later, as Deborah gives another word from the Lord, an instruction for the moment at which Barak should actually lead the people out to battle against Sisera. This is not merely speculation based on this passage alone. You can compare it to parallel events at other times in Israel's history. One that comes to mind is the example of Moses after the golden calf incident. In Exodus 33, God says to Moses, listen, I... Um, he's have, he, God is going to have mercy on Israel. He's not going to completely destroy them as they deserve. He says, I'm going to let Israel go on to the promised land. But then he delivers the devastating news. But I will not go up among you 
lest I consume you on the way for your stiff-necked people. And remember Moses' response in that chapter. He says, Lord, no, if, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. If you're not going to go with us, we don't want to go to the promised land. Another episode that comes to mind is um, Saul. The trouble that Saul got himself into by not waiting for the prophet Samuel uh, before he offered his sacrifice in preparation for his battle against the Philistines. That was one of Saul's great errors. There's another occasion when he makes his second great error of, uh, against the Amalekites, how he, he begs Samuel to please go down with him back to the people so that they will be able to see that the Lord's prophet still recognizes him as the true king, and Samuel refuses. They're not going to do it. The Lord has rejected Saul from being king. So, um, I'm not inclined to be too harsh too quickly on a military leader like Barak, then earnestly wanting God's prophet to accompany the army to battle. I'm not sure it's a sign of weakness. Arguably, you could see it as a sign of spiritual insight. I could be wrong about that. It's a debated, debated passage. And with that information, I will leave you to draw your own conclusion or to study it further on your own. It's a difficult, um, difficult kind of moment in the story to interpret. But the good news, this would be a major problem. That difficulty would be a major problem if <clears throat> the payoff of this passage were to draw the moral of the story. If, 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 if getting the point of the passage depended on figuring out whether you're supposed to imitate Barak or not imitate Barak, wait, which way am I supposed to go? It could mean two different things. Well, of course, that's not the point of the story. Either way, we interpret Barak's response. The, the main point of the story is unchanged. Because the point is not to say, oh, look, Deborah is good, be like Deborah, and oh, look, Barak is bad, don't be like Barak. The deeper point is that neither Deborah nor Barak is going to be the hero of the story. So a lot of people reinforce the idea that Barak is, is a coward by saying, well, look, Deborah rebukes him, um, implicitly rebukes him when she says, well, I'll go with you, but you're not going to get the glory from this victory. There's going to be a woman who is going to be the, the instrument of victory. The uh, Lord is going to sell Sisera into the hand of, of a woman. And so people say that's an implicit rebuke of Barak, saying because you didn't trust God enough, you're not going to get glory from this victory. But again, I'm, I think the, the deeper point here is to show who the ultimate uh, hero of the story is going to be. It's not going to be Deborah. It's not going to be Barak. It's not even going to be Jael. It's going to be the Lord. It's the Lord who is orchestrating this victory in his own way. Nobody else gets to steal the credit from him. Well, let's hold that thought as we continue to see the battle and its aftermath unfold. If Deborah is an unusual messenger, that's the first point, then the next section describes Israel's victory as, from a human point of view, a very unlikely victory, a victory against all apparent odds. Notice how the 900 chariots come back into play in verse 13. Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him. It's as though Barak is marching out with his infantry 
foot soldiers, and here comes Sisera with his foot soldiers and tanks. And it's just not an even matchup. Sisera clearly has a military advantage, again, from a human point of view. Brock is just completely outgunned. But once again, what makes all the difference? It's that the word of the Lord intervenes and sets things on a very different trajectory. What you see is not what you're going to get in the end. The way that things seem is not necessarily the way things are. Isn't that such a pervasive theme in the Bible? Think back to what we were learning in adult Sunday school this morning about that insight, that vision into the things that are unseen that John has given. Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? Sisera has his 900 chariots, all right. But that suddenly doesn't look so impressive when you realize that on Israel's side is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. It's actually Sisera who is vastly, hopelessly outgunned. And the Lord is going to go out before Barak. He's going to lead the charge. He's going to make the way for victory for the people of Israel. And so you can see here, as one writer points out, that that payoff of Barak insisting that Deborah come. The prophetess now can tell him with this divine authority when the battle should begin. He wants to be led and guided by the word of God. And that's a key component of how this uh, victory takes place and why it is such a total victory. It is conducted according to the word of God through God's messenger. Well, sure enough, verse 15, uh, does it say Barak routed Sisera? Is that what it says? It's not what it says, is it? And the Lord routed Sisera, right? And all his, that's important, the subject of the sentence, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak. The Lord is out in front winning the battle, and Barak is just coming and mopping up. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. Sisera actually has to abandon his chariot that supposedly was his great advantage, and there he's off leaving it behind as if it broke down or something. Uh, I might ask if you can remember another occasion where the Lord routed the chariots of a king who was oppressing Israel. And I hope that makes you think of the Red Sea, where it says that the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. But what happens? God starts clogging their chariot wheels, right? So that they drove heavily, and the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. But of course, none of them make it out alive. The waters close over those chariots that seemed like such an existential threat to the people. Remember, when the Lord sold Israel into the hand of Jabin, that was a reversal of the Exodus, right? Like going back into slavery. But now, as Sisera's chariots are routed by the Lord, it's as though the flow is reversed once more and the Exodus is running in the correct direction again. The Lord is redeeming his people once again from their bondage to this enemy king. Now, the final scene takes place at the tent of Jael. 
And the historian uh, already teed this up for us back in verse 11 when he mentioned in passing that near Kadesh there lived this man named Heber, Heber a Kenite. The Kenites were relatives of Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. They were non-Israelites, but to one degree or another, they were connected to Israel at different times in their history. They were mentioned back in Judges 1.16 as settling right in there among uh, the people of Judah. Verse 17 in, of this chapter informs us that there was peace, it says, between Jabin and Haber. So when, when Jabin's general sister arrives there, he has reason to expect that this is going to be a safe house for him. Um, but, of course, that's not how things are going to turn out. Because for whatever reason, Jael is not friendly to Jabin. She is going to take the side of the people of God. At first, she welcomes him in, gives him something to drink, gives him a place to rest. But as it turns out, all that is just lulling Sisera into a false sense of security. Now, we need to understand, it is no accident that the very, very gruesome death of Sisera is, occurs so close in Judges to the gruesome death of Eglon. On, on a super, superficial reading, you might read and say, boy, there's just a lot of people dying in grotesque ways in this book, and then not give it another thought. We have to understand that the author has composed this book very carefully to put these two events side by side to reinforce the spiritual lesson that both these events, historical events, are teaching us. Eglon and Sisera both are taken by surprise by people that they wrongly trusted who turned out to be assassins and who killed them in very gory ways. Um, in fact, if you look at chapters 3 and 4 together, it appears they're very carefully constructed in um, commentators note this A-B-B-A pattern. Uh, the order's reversed. With Ehud, you have the assassination followed by a military victory. And then with Barak, you have the military victory followed by the assassination. But it's a, a pattern, so the two episodes, the two judgeships, the two victories, the two deaths of these two enemy kings are linked very closely. In fact, if anything, I would argue that the symbolism of Jael's killing of Sisera um, takes things even to a deeper level of significance. As it comes second, drives the point home uh, even further but with a new layer of symbolism in the way that Sisera is destroyed. Remember what I mentioned at the very beginning, the original arch promise that God made, the inception of the covenant of grace after Adam and Eve sinned, when he told the tempter in Genesis 3 that he was going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. That's what's being lived out in this conflict, as in all of the conflicts between Israel and her enemies in the Bible, it's being lived out here in a particular way. This conflict between Israel and the army of Jabin. God's people, the people of the covenant, are waging war against the enemies of God, the offspring of the serpent. The offspring of the woman versus the offspring of the serpent. And how is God going to give them the victory? It's going to be through an unexpected instrument. It's going to be through this woman. This woman that Sisera thought was his ally, but turned out instead to be his downfall. And it is through the woman 
that God crushes the head of the offspring of the serpent. I think that's very significant when we then fast forward to the New Testament. We consider, as we did some last time, how unusual, how unlikely, how unexpected was the manner in which Jesus Christ came into the world. Who would have thought that it would be someone like Mary, whom God would use to bring the Savior into um, history as a man. Remember how Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And in what followed, God, through her, brought forth the ultimate offspring of the woman, son of not just Mary, but of Eve, many generations before. And it was his mission in life to crush the serpent's head once and for all. And that manner of Christ's coming, that surprising plan of God, so subversive of people's expectations of what the coming of the Messiah would be like. It's not just relevant for the birth of Jesus either. We see the same pattern throughout Christ's life and ultimately on the cross. That unlikely, that surprising, that unexpected way that God intended to crush the serpent's head through the wounding of Christ's heel. What we also want to understand is that that pattern that's true of Christ we should not be surprised to find is also the pattern that's true in the lives of the people of Christ. We read this earlier from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, about how God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. How in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, but please God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It talks about how the foolishness of God is wiser than men, the weakness of God is stronger than men. God didn't choose wise and powerful and noble people. He chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And what was the reason? Was the reason was that we would not be able to boast in ourselves, but let the one who boasts boast only in the Lord. Because salvation belongs to the Lord and not to us. It's none of us can take the credit for the great victory of the salvation that God has provided through these unexpected means. And he's chosen these unexpected means of, that you would, you would never have anticipated to highlight his sovereignty in this work of grace alone. See, the, the point of this story is not that we should celebrate and emulate Deborah or Barak or Jael. Um, I mean, that, that can be a secondary consideration as as each of these characters is being faithful to their calling, as they're carrying out God's plan, as each one has some degree of spiritual insight and takes part in God's victory, yes, they're examples of faith and obedience for us. It's true. Barak is listed in Hebrews 11. I'll buy faith. He won this victory. That's true. But the central point, the person that this passage really puts on display is the Lord. As he systematically chooses means people are not expecting to bring to nothing the powers that seem the most imposing, the most overwhelming, the most insurmountable, but then it's by his almighty power that he wins the victory for his people, just as he would one day do again in Jesus Christ.
a Savior, and just as he is continuing to do every day now in the ongoing life of the church. The big takeaway from this chapter is not so much be like Barak. The big takeaway is that the Lord has crushed the serpent's head. That, as we saw this morning, there's no enemy so formidable or so cruel that it can compromise the sovereign authority and power of God to bring his plan to completion in our lives. God in Christ has crushed the serpent's head, and so now it is his promise to you in Romans 16.20 that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet just as surely as he crushed the head of Sisera beneath the hammer and tent peg of this woman. And so the call for us then is the call of verse 14. But now coming to us in Christ as those who have been rescued and redeemed by the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Up! As Deborah calls to Barak. Up! Go forth and follow Christ then on that path of victory that he has already won on your behalf. The serpent's head has been crushed. The promises before you of the Lord crushing that serpent under your own feet as well. Does not the Lord go out before you? That is the question we should have ringing in our ears as we go out further up and further in into the week ahead and the life of the head that Lord has called us to in Christ. So let's pray. Our Father in, head, in heaven, we thank you for yet another uh, account of your deliverance of your people when they didn't deserve it. And yet you showed your almighty salvation, winning for them a battle they could never win for themselves. And we pray that you would encourage us through this. You would challenge us by it. To trust in your almighty power. And to go out with confidence to serve you faithfully. Knowing that you are the one who goes before us to crush the serpent's head. We pray all of this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.